media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We've gone through the halfway point of Mark. And if you've been with us here in the last couple of weeks, we've said that you know the first two and a half years of ministry of Christ was covered in the first eight chapters. And then in the next couple of chapters, we're going to see about two months worth. And then Mark's going to take those last six chapters and cover the Passion Week. That's his focus, this hope that we have in the finished work of Christ. Well, have you ever noticed that there's certain things in our lives that just kind of go together, that we've been trained, that when we hear one thing, we kind of automatically almost link it to another? For example, peanut butter and? Of course. Macaroni and? Yeah. Batman and? Green eggs and? There you go. See? You know, maybe normally, I mean, I just, you know, when was the last time, besides being trained that way, that you would have thought of green eggs to begin with, and then their association with ham? And yet we were trained, and we were kind of taught, and so automatically over the years, we kind of developed this thought that when we think of one, we almost automatically think of the other. Well, this morning, I really believe that that's what Christ is trying to do. As we go through the ministry of Christ, we begin to see that he's making now the disciples very aware. Before there was hints about that one day he was going to die on a cross. And he did that in symbolism. He did that in different ways of describing. But in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that he becomes very pronounced. I will go to Jerusalem and, and they will put me on a cross and I will die. And then I'll rise again. But they never hear that last part. They get so freaked out over that first part. What, what, what do you mean that you're going to die? What do you mean that you're going to go to a cross? That I don't know that they ever really hear that last part. And so what we begin to see here in Mark's gospel is that Jesus is very much pronouncing an association. Like we would associate peanut butter and jelly. He said, I want you to think of the cross, but I want you to think immediately of the resurrection. I don't want you to ever separate these two. That these two automatically are just going to go together. Because if you only see the cross, then you see maybe a possible defeat. You, you see death. You, you don't see the finished product of life. And how many times we get in our circumstances, like Ricky was saying before, I, I thought he was going to start preaching there. I mean, in that first song, that was great. Uh, but how many times do we get in, in circumstances like that, and, and all we see is the death part, and we don't see the resurrection part? Well, this morning, let's go back one verse. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And remember last week we said that it was really so loving and grace-giving that Christ is teaching them at this point. He's not just preaching to them. He's not just scolding them. He's not just giving them facts. But his heart is the heart of a teacher. He wants them to learn. Why? Because he knows that they do not comprehend yet. They, They don't take the cross and the resurrection in one thought. They very much have separated the two. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, where we left off last week, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I really wonder how much they really comprehended that last part. You know, we, we said last week, we like winners. Just kind of in our mindset, we like winning. 
And they didn't see the cross as winning at all. In fact, if anything, they saw that not only as a defeat, but a humiliating defeat. And so they just want to stay away from that. They don't want Christ to go to Jerusalem. They don't want him to follow the path that God had set out before him. And because of that, they, they just now, you know, we have the audacity of someone like Peter going, uh, Jesus, come over here. <laughs> Let me rebuke you. And we saw that that word that Mark and the other gospel writers said was a very, it wasn't just, hey, I, I have a different way of thinking on this. No, it was a rebuke. It was almost like we said physically taking the shoulders of Christ, turning them to your face so that you can be face to face. Pretty stern words. Pretty bold move of Peter. But evidence that he just doesn't get it. He doesn't connect yet the cross and the resurrection. So as we move on to chapter 9 this morning, we begin to really see that they don't understand. And um, we look at an event that happened in the life of Christ that many of us know the what. Sometimes I, I wonder if we know the why. That is the transfiguration of Christ. Quick poll this morning. How many of you have heard of the transfiguration of Christ? Okay. How many of you could explain it to another person? Maybe the what part. Could you explain the why part? Well, that's what we want to look at the scripture this morning to kind of get the why part. Well, why was he, why did he reveal his glory? You know, was it really that miraculous? I love what Spurgeon says about this. Spurgeon says, no, the real miracle is that he uh, held his glory back in his earthly life for all these years. You know, this revelation of his glory, this, this was, this is who Christ is. The real miracle is that for somehow they didn't see his glory for all those years. But what does that mean, transfiguration? The word is used three times in the New Testament. And, uh, the, the word are, uh, besides the gospels, two other times. So in the gospels as Matthew, Mark, and, uh, uh, Luke, write about it. And it means to change, to transform. It's where we actually get our word, the Greek word is where we actually get our word metamorphosis, like a butterfly, a frog. Starts out as a tadpole, becomes a frog. Starts out as a caterpillar, becomes a butterfly. Transformation. And this morning, some of you may know some of the events that happen, that Jesus appears and his clothes the Bible describes as whiter than white, whiter than anyone could ever bleach them on earth. And we know some of the details. But this morning, let's try to ask, why did Jesus do this now? And what was he trying to convince, teach the disciples? Because remember, he's trying to teach them. And we begin to see uh, there in that last part that he began to speak plainly about his future death. Now look at verse 2 of chapter 9. It's the only time that I can really remember that Mark kind of pinpoints uh, a time frame. Most times he'll say immediately after, or he'll say, you know, afterwards or something like that. But here we actually get a time frame, six days later. The purpose of that, because he just wanted us to look at it on the calendar. No, I think he's trying to connect these two events. What just happened in chapter 8, this revelation that he's going to die, he's going to go to Jerusalem, that they're going to take him, mock him, spit upon him. And that he will die on a cross. Now, six days later, verse 2 says, After six days Jesus took him, uh, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured, there's that word, before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, 
as no one on earth could bleach them. Now this event, I believe, is again in direct connection to everything that we just saw transpire in in chapter 8. Jesus takes what we've termed the inner circle, the three closest of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them on the mountain. And Luke says in his gospel that they went up to the mountain and, and they began to pray, and believe it or not, those three disciples fell asleep. It's kind of a returning theme throughout the disciples when they go off to pray. Jesus continues to pray, and somehow the disciples fall asleep. It happens quite a bit. And so maybe you fall asleep sometimes when you're praying. You're in good company, okay? So they begin to pray, and they fall asleep. And when they wake up, they see the transfigured Christ. And they really have a mix of emotions. There's a part of them that says, this is good, because they see the glory of Jesus, and there's a part of them that is afraid. Can you imagine that us in the flesh, if we saw the real glory of Christ, that there would be that mix of emotions? Remember Isaiah in the Old Testament when it says in chapter 6 that he he was in the throne room of God? And what was his immediate response? I need to get out of here. And then the angel comes over and the purifying is a pre-picture of the work of Christ, puts it on his tongue, and then what happens? God says, well, who will I send? And I'll send Isaiah, the first one. Here I am. Send me. In other words, we go from this place. When we see the glory of God, there's a part of us in our humanity and in our sinfulness that says, I see the perfection of holy God, and I want to go the other way. But there's a part of us that when we see the redemptive work of Christ that draws us to this, we see this is our hope. And they actually experienced that. There was a part of them. Look what it says there. In verse 5 and 6, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because when they opened their eyes, when they began to see the transfigured Christ, Moses was also there, but seems to be like with a physical body. Again, how much of this was a vision? How much of this was that God did this reality? But what they saw would have been just like you and I sitting here today. They would have seen Moses and Elijah, he says, I want to build a tent. <laughs> one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is a really special place. But look at verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now this is Peter. <laughs> There's two things that two ways that people react when they don't know what to say. Some people actually do the wise thing and they remain silent. Have you ever met somebody that when they didn't know what to say, they begin to say things? I don't know which one of you. I'm not making any accusations. But Peter is the latter. When he doesn't know what to say, he just begins to talk. And he says, we're going to make tents and we're going to kind of camp out here. This is good for us to do that. And that's not the intention of Jesus whatsoever, as we'll see as we begin to, to look further into this event. But he's got this mix of emotions. He's, he's drawn to this. Because it is this great clarification that this is the Christ. And he begins to see him in all his glory and how attractive that would be. But at the same time in their sinfulness, oh my goodness, I don't know, should we even be here? Well, as we go into verse 7, really an amazing thing happens. A cloud overshadowed them. And this is the presence of God. We can call it the Shekinah glory of God. 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Now, have you ever heard that before? When? The baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, at the beginning of his ministry, the father speaks, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. And he repeats it here, and yet there's an addition. There's something he adds that he says this time that he didn't say last time. And what is that? Ah, Listen to him. Now that seems kind of simple. There were many, many times that as I left the house, in times of family discussion, I'm not going to say family conflict, but family discussions, and I would tell my girls, now, I'm leaving, but you listen to your mom. You listen to your mama. In other words, there's instruction, there's learning, there's some teaching that needs to be taken place here. And remember, this is the heart of the teacher, that instead of just put, putting it out there and, and kind of leaving us where we are, that it says over and over again, Mark says, and he's teaching them, and he's teaching them, and he's gracefully teaching them. And here, the father, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to what? Listen to what? I believe this is really the key to the passage. And not just because it's additional words than we see at the baptism, but I think this is the why instead of just the what happened. Well, we see details here. And they're fabulous, they're overwhelming, they're miraculous in, in the details. But, but the why, why is Jesus revealing his glory? Why now? And what are the disciples to learn from that? Why did Jesus reveal his true nature and his true glory to just these three disciples? And why did he do it at this particular time? That's the why. Now let's make this connection. I, I believe that the answer is what God just said. Listen to him. Because I believe that Jesus is trying to make a connection. What is he trying to connect? The cross and the resurrection. Yeah. By the end of this sermon, I hope that you're saying peanut butter and jelly. Cross, resurrection. <laughs> that it just becomes synonymous. I mean, it just becomes so connected in our mind. Because I really believe that's the intention of our Lord here. We see at the end of chapter 8 that the disciples, they just don't get it. They don't understand the cross. They see it as defeat. They don't see it turning into life. They see it as a place of suffering rather than victory. And so what does Jesus do in this teacher's heart? He connects the dots. Isn't that what really teaching is? Teaching is connecting the dots. I mean, I've learned in the basics of education that you teach here but you have to lay it upon something that is already known. So teaching is always a step up, and we have a lot of teachers here, and you know that is the fundamentals of education, that you take what is already known, that they can count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then you can teach addition. And after you get addition, you can start to teach multiplication. You build upon what's already known, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He begins to connect, and he wants to connect this cross that they do not understand to the resurrection, which I don't know that has really even entered their mind yet because they're so freaked out about this first part. And yet, in his grace and his mercy, that's exactly what he does. So what, what are the dots that he's connecting? Well, think about this. Moses. Why is Moses there? I mean, why not Abraham? 
I mean, you think Abraham's in paradise going, I wasn't invited. I was pretty important in that Old Testament. And yet he picks Moses and, and Elijah. I, I was thinking I was at least in the top two. Why is it Moses? What does Moses represent in the Old Testament? The law. And what does Elijah represent in the Old Testament? Prophecies. The law and prophecies. And this is where Jesus is trying to connect the dots. Matthew 5.17. You don't have to turn there unless you just want to, but, but up here. Look at this verse because this is very telling. This is Jesus in his own words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's a plan. There's a plan. Don't think that I'm throwing this out. I'm working the plan that the Father has set before me. Does that make sense? And so all of a sudden, you know, Abraham's going, okay, I'm fine. I am fine. (laughs) Now I see what you're doing, God. There's a purpose of having Moses representing the law. There's a purpose of having Elijah representing the prophecies. That Christ is coming. This was the whole point of me coming and taking on flesh. To fulfill God's law, not to abolish them. Now look back at verse 4. And you see that Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. See back in verse 4? He says that they're talking. And what were they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us, but if we go to the other Gospels, again, as we're studying the life of Christ, always look at the parallel passages, and it's going to kind of add color and and depth and dimension to it because one Gospel writer is going to say something that the other one didn't. And so what does Luke say that they were talking about? Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke does. Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure... Now look at the, last, the next part, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Is, it a, is accomplish a, a, more of a victorious positive word or is it a negative kind of defeated word? When you accomplish something. So they're, they're talking. Can you imagine that conversation? You know, I imagine that they did several palm plants there. I mean, we fell asleep. We didn't hear this. But Luke records what they were talking about. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking, and they're talking there. And what are they talking about? Moses and Elijah are talking about his glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. They're not talking about, no, you don't need to go. Oh, that's a trap. They're going to take you. No, you don't need to go. No. They begin to see the very will of God, the very plan of God for the ages revealed through the life of Christ. Now, Jesus wants to leave no doubt in the minds of Peter, James, and John that Jerusalem is the right course and that the cross is part of the God's divine plan. That's why he uses this word to accomplish it. In this moment, Jesus pulls back the curtain so the disciples can, can see his glory and his majesty. So that they can see things are not falling apart. Things are actually coming together. And it's so easy to point fingers at Peter and James and John and, and all the things that they said, so many miscues. 
we would have been exactly the same thing. I, I think every mother in here would have had that protector. No, Jesus, you are not going to Jerusalem. If there's even a hint of trouble there, you will not be going. Now, all the men, hey, you know, I'll go, and if they come here, we'll protect you. They have to get through us to get to you. Can, can you not see us somehow in some misguided way, thinking that we're actually coming to be heroic in, in the plans of Christ, that, that we would do those kind of things? And Jesus says, look, even Moses and Elijah now know. They know this is part of an internal plan. And then just as quickly as they had appeared, they were gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. They didn't make tents. <laughs> Jesus didn't allow them to stay there because Jesus has no intention of staying on the mount. He has every intention of going to Jerusalem. And as they come down from the mountain, Jesus tells the disciples, these three, to not tell anyone about this until he has risen from the dead. It's always curious not what Jesus said not to say, but all the times that he says not to say something. And the whole reason he says not to is not because he's embarrassed, because somehow he doesn't grasp it, he doesn't know it. No, they're not ready for it yet. There's not a maturity and a basis for them to understand. So he says, look, you know, guys, you, we've, I've revealed that to you. You've seen the very glory in this transfiguration of, of my body. I've revealed to you the glory so that you can know and have the confidence that this is God's plan. You can sing it as well with my soul, even when everything seems like it's falling apart, because you can know that God is working wonders through this. Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And once the resurrection happens, I want you to immediately, I want you to go out and preach to everybody the cross and the resurrection. I want them to be able to say that like peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, Batman and Robin. I want them, when they think of the cross, to think of the resurrection. I don't want these two to ever be separated again. But now look at verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves. It's one of the few times that they actually were obedient. But listen to the last part. Look at that last part. Questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, you and I, we have had the benefit of history and biblical teaching, and we kind of know a little bit about what this rising from the dead is. We've heard the rest of the story. They didn't. And even though the prophets had foretold it, and even though Jesus now is speaking plainly, they're still kind of confused. And yet there's a purpose there. But what, what is this rising from the dead? What does it mean? Well, this one, let me give you two applications for our life. Because in one sense, we can be very, very overwhelmed with how spectacular this story is. And go, wow, would that not have been a great place to have your phone ready to, to film? That would have been a great picture to post on Facebook. Now, look, Elijah, Moses, Jesus, look at the glory of Jesus. I mean, in one way, we can see this as a historical event. But what does it mean? Because I think we really, we find that meaning in the same question that they were asking in verse 10. Questioning, what does this rising from the dead mean? And the first one, I think, is the one that comes quickly to us. If you've been in church at all, and even if you haven't, maybe you're familiar enough that we as Christians believe in eternal life. 
We believe that that eternal life is either going to be with God or separated from God. But we do believe that there is a life after this physical life that we have. And even if you've only been in church a couple weeks, a couple months, there's some familiarity with that. If you've been raised in the church, you probably know quite a bit about that. And it actually gives us in those times of losing a loved one that we can say it, it is well with my soul. I'm not well with the circumstances. I miss my mama. I, I miss my daddy. I, I miss these people tremendously, but it is well with my soul. Why? Because I'm going to forever connect the cross with the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Are you seeing the same thing I am seeing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Take my word. This is what 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says. Okay. But you can look it up too. I'd love for you to find it. Oh, there it is. There you go. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now, he's, when he says brothers, he's talking about the body of Christ. He's not just talking about men. He's talking about the body of Christ. Men, women, Children, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. He uses the word asleep instead of dead because he says, I want you to know that that was not the end. In many ways, it was just the beginning. Because what's the end result? You may not grieve as others do that have no hope. We were just talking the other day. Over the year, I've, over the years, I've done uh, now over 600 funerals. And guys, the majority of those, the vast majority of those have always been of believers. But there's been a few times that I've done a, uh, a funeral for somebody that, for the most part, we did not believe that that person was a believer. For the most part, there wasn't evidence there. Uh, I mean, when the own mama says he didn't know Christ, you can kind of take it if a mama says that. And in those times, there's a drastic difference, guys. There's a drastic difference. There's weeping in both sides. This one, the one who knows Christ, this one who didn't know Christ. There's weeping, but over here there's weeping with hope. And over here there's just weeping. I've seen it as a stark reality. I felt it like a presence in the room. And that's what Paul begins to write here. But look, he goes on to say... Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, died and rose again, we're going to forever connect these two because they are, they, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. Since Jesus died and rose again, even so, those Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Go down to verse 18. He gives us our marching orders. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's part of this life that he's illustrating there that, that we're probably most familiar with. Man, it's talking about eternal life, that when we die here, if we're in Christ, that we go to live with him. But there is a present aspect to what Jesus was saying also. There, there's another connection that I believe Jesus was making on that man, Mount of Transfiguration that applies directly to those who have placed their trust in Christ. Again, this is for the church. This is for the body of Christ. And that is the power of transformation that we can experience now. Ultimately, full transformation, glorification, what we would call glorification, happens when we go to heaven. Okay? But the transformation starts now. 
Were you listening before when I said that this is this word for transfiguration that is described by the different Gospels, that word is found in how many other places in the New Testament? Anybody remember? It's three. This one in the Gospels and then two others. Where are those two other ones? Are they talking about Christ? Are they telling the historical story of the transfiguration? No. And the other two places that this word is used, guess who it's talking about? The body of Christ. One of those is in our vision verse for CS for 2021. Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There's the word. That's the same Greek word. Does that mean all of a sudden we, we get really bright and our clothes get like we've been in a bottle of bleach or something? And they're just, No. It's talking about spiritually we've been transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christ's death and resurrection give us the power to be transformed in this present life. What does that mean? It means that we have the ability now through Christ to act differently, to think differently, folks, to hope differently. It is well with my soul. Well, your circumstances aren't looking so great. No, but it is well with my soul. Because God has transformed my thinking. But it looks like death. No, there is resurrection. And I'll never separate the death of Christ from the resurrection. This what looks like defeat to the victory that is winning for us. Where's the other place? Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, I think he's using that, you know, because this, this, this Shekinah glory of God and this appearance of things. He says, and we all, that is us, the body of Christ with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, now get this, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God is transforming the body of Christ. He's maturing. He's teaching us. He's making us. Now, does this mean that we become God? No. (laughs) Does it mean that we can reflect godliness in our lives? Yes. Because all of a sudden we learn some more moral code and we become more obedient in wall obedience? No. He says right there, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This comes because of what was accomplished. Christ in us, the very Spirit of God enabling us now to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is the Christian life. I pray that you think differently today than you did five years ago. And if you've been a Christian longer, that you thought differently five years ago than you did five years before that. There's a transformation going. He is a patient and he is a kind teacher. But he is a teacher and he has the heart of the teacher. And he's ever patient with us. But he is wanting and desiring to transform us from one degree of glory to the other. Do you see that in the verse? This is what the word of God says. This is what your pastor says. So what is God doing? If we read a little bit farther on in Corinthians, we see this. And, and it's not going to be up here, but in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10, I, I challenge you, 
after reading that last verse in Corinthians chapter 3, 318, spend some time today or tomorrow, go read 2 Corinthians 4. It's one of the most encouraging chapters in the entire Bible. Why? Because it says, because God has done this, here's what we get to experience. Let me read you just a part of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This isn't about us. We're the recipients of it. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now look at verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What is he doing? (laughs) Guys, the death of Jesus, connect that with the resurrected life of Jesus. Never separate these two. Peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, Batman and Robin. Cross and the resurrection. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, we probably already had some understanding of this hope that we have for our loved ones that were in you. And Father, we, we know that we will see them again. And Father, that we will spend all eternity with them. And Father, that's the only hope that kind of gets us going on those really discouraging days. And especially on days like this, when it's the first Mother's Day without mom or the first Mother's Day without dad leading the way. And all these different emotions come. And Father, it is heavy. And yet we have this hope. So Father, thank you for that assurance. But Father, help us to see the assurance that you've given us for today. For a transformation in our own lives. For Father, we know that we don't always think correctly. We don't always look at things in a way that is mature and godly and eternal. And yet we read this morning, this word, transform, transfiguration. Father, we we see this word being used twice to reflect not something that's happening in the future, but something that you have desired to happen in our lives today. Father, we just think differently. We just act differently. We just hope differently. Not because we are the new, improved version of ourselves, but because your very spirit fills us and we experience the power and the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to grasp that. Help us to applaud loudly today and sing, Father, we are redeemed. We are redeemed by the finished work of Christ. We are redeemed. We love you and thank you. And we sing this prayer and this song to you, Father, in a heart of joy and a heart of thankfulness, thanking you that we can say this because you've provided it through your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org 
or find us on Facebook.